Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for today, which is Wednesday, January 24th. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Sally Ortgies and Patty Daniels. Here's our first story. Thanks, thanks, Patty. Uh, Homicide Victims Had Gunshot Wounds by Tom Lowy. A search warrant revealed Davenport firefighters found a gruesome scene after responding to last week's report of a fire inside the home at 5210 North Division Street. A man and woman, later identified as Brian L. Goodwin and Amy M. Smith, were dead in a bedroom where it is believed the fire started. The man had been bound and had trauma to his face and head. Both appeared to have been shot. On the entry stairs leading up from the bedroom, firefighters found a bloody lighter and a hatchet. The bottom step was soaked in blood. Goodwin and Smith were found after a neighbor reported a fire in the home at 3.57 a.m. Tuesday, January 16th. What firefighters and Davenport police investigators found was detailed in a search warrant issued after the arrest of Adriana Preto on Thursday, January 18th. The 26-year-old Preto was arrested just before midnight Thursday, January 18th at the Quickstar gas station on West 65th Street in Davenport. According to the arrest report, She was in the passenger seat of a white 2015 Ford Explorer and was riding with two other men. Preto and one of the men were taken into custody. The Explorer's driver, who said he was simply driving Preto and the man to another vehicle, had picked up Preto and the man from a home in the 1000 block of College Avenue. Preto listed her address as 5210 North Division Street. The search warrant said she lived at the address for several months. A friend of Goodwin said Preto was evicted from her apartment in the fall of 2023, and Goodwin took her in. Brian Goodwin was a really nice guy and wanted to help her out, the friend said. According to Preto's arrest affidavit, she did knowingly possess a loaded firearm while seated in the passenger compartment of a 2015 Ford Explorer. Preto has a felony conviction for second-degree theft in Scott County and has multiple felony convictions in Iowa and Illinois. She is being held on a total of $2.02 million bond, which includes a $1 million bond for the possession of a firearm charge and another $1 million bond for a probation violation. She also is wanted in Rock Island County for driving on a suspended license and operating an uninsured vehicle. Devin Brait, 34, was arrested at the same time as Preto and charged with being a felon in possession of a firearm. Like Preto, his bond is set at $1 million. Brait's U.S. Department of Justice Federal Bureau of Prisons identification card was found inside the house at 5210 North Division Street. The search warrant described Brait as being in a romantic relationship with Adriana Preto a.k.a. Adi. After Preto and Brait were arrested, police seized a number of items from the 2015 Ford Explorer, including Amy Smith's purse with contents and identification, a 22 Ruger mini rifle, a 38 Special Revolver, heroin, methamphetamine, 
a journal with sticky notes of stolen items, a digital camera. Neither Prado or Brate have been charged in the homicides as of Tuesday afternoon. Prado and Brate were seen on security footage from the Casey's across from the home where Goodwin lived. According to the search warrant, Prado and Brate can be seen coming and going from 5210 North Division Street and the Casey's throughout the day on Monday, January 15th, and throughout the early morning hours of Tuesday, January 16th, before the report of the fire. There were at least seven surveillance cameras mounted to the exterior of the home at 5210 North Division Street. Detectives knew from a previous search warrant executed on the home that Goodwin had a DVR recording attached to the surveillance system. According to the search warrant for the Explorer, the DVR for the surveillance system was not present at the residence and appeared to have been removed prior to the structure fire. A member of Goodwin's family called the Davenport police at 11.46 p.m. Monday, January 15th to report an incident outside the Casey's General Store at 1691 West 53rd Street, which is the corner across from Goodwin's home on North Division Street. This call for service was originally characterized in a police report as a response to a possible domestic disturbance, and the search warrant clarifies that the 11.46 p.m. call on January 15th originated from a member of Goodwin's family who had not heard from him. Friends of Goodwin made it clear that by late in the evening of Monday, January 15th, there were concerns because no one had heard from Brian Goodwin. The family member told police that since she was unable to contact Goodwin, she went to his home and then found his white Dodge Nitro parked at the Casey's across the street. She told police she saw the driver was a male wearing a black ski mask and a black stocking cap with a Pittsburgh Steelers logo, and said the passenger was a man she knew. The family member said she tried to block the Nitro in the parking lot, but the men fled in the Nitro and traveled south on North Division Street. On Tuesday, January 16th, Davenport Police detectives found Goodwin's Dodge Nitro parked near Arlington Avenue and Kirkwood Boulevard. The detectives set up surveillance on the Nitro and followed a man who drove it at 10 a.m. The vehicle was stopped and the man was taken into custody, the search warrant said, but there is no record of his arrest. Goodwin was the focus of two search warrants in the months before his death. In September of 2023, police sought a search warrant for Goodwin and the Division Street address, according to court records. Authorities allege officers recovered 58.4 grams of suspected crystal methamphetamine, 2 grams of suspected heroin, and two digital scales. The warrant stated the utilities for the apartment were in Goodwin's name. The September 2023 warrant may have been in response to a Crime Stoppers tip to the Davenport police that a man named Brian Williams received 11 pounds of methamphetamine from California. The warrant from the Prito arrest indicated Brian Williams was Goodwin. That tipster said meth was hidden around the house and outside. The police sought an earlier search warrant in August of 2023, using it to search a room at Bettendorf's Isle Casino Hotel, court records state. Authorities alleged the room was registered to Goodwin and officers recovered raw marijuana with a total package weight of more than 46 grams. 
Police also found cocaine with just under a gram of total package weight, a metal container with methamphetamine residue inside, and a glass bowl also containing meth residue, according to court records. At the time of the search, there was no one in the room. At one time, Goodwin was an employee of Scott County, and friends said he was married and raised three sons. They described him as kind and generous. The friends did not want to be identified for fear of retribution. He did have addiction issues, but he always got help and always tried to do the right thing for his family and friends, said a friend who knew Goodwin for three decades. He was doing okay, and then he just disappeared. It seemed like his life just went out of control. Friends said that news of the search warrant and that Goodwin had not been arrested after the searches spread fear through those who knew him. Those search warrants will lead some people to make assumptions about Brian Goodwin, and that will put people in danger, one of Goodwin's friends said. I think it is irresponsible that those search warrants were included in a story about his death. He wasn't arrested for anything. You're basically smearing a, a guy. Brian was a really good person. He doesn't deserve any of this. Smith was never named in either of the search warrants. Goodwin's friends who spoke with the Quad City Times said they did not know her. I have no idea who she is or what her relationship with Brian Goodwin was, one of Goodwin's friends said. Smith did have a criminal record. In 2018, she received a suspended sentence in Clinton County District Court for forgery and possession of a firearm by a felon. She was arrested in 2021 and charged with first-degree theft after found being in possession of a stolen truck and camper. She pleaded guilty to a pair of first-degree theft charges. Danielle Anderson is Smith's sister. She declined to offer much detail about Smith's life, but did issue a statement Friday, January 19th. Our family is devastated by this tragedy, and we are grappling with the deep loss of a cherished family member, Anderson said. She went on to say Smith was a loving daughter, sister, mom, and friend whose vibrant spirit touched the lives of all who knew her. Her kindness, free spirit, and defiant nature will be deeply missed. We are grateful for the outpouring of support from friends in the community during this incredibly difficult time. Anderson and other members of Smith's family requested privacy as they mourn her and process the circumstances of her death. We trust that the authorities are diligently working to bring those responsible to justice, the statement said. Trump-Biden win New Hampshire primaries. November election rematch appears increasingly likely. Written for us by Holly Raymer, Jill Colvin, and Will Weissert of the Associated Press. Manchester, New Hampshire. Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primary Tuesday, tightening his grip on the Republican presidential nomination and bolstering the likelihood of a rematch later this year against President Joe Biden. The result was a setback for former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who finished in second place after investing significant time and financial resources into winning the state. She was the last major challenger in the GOP race after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ended his presidential bid over the weekend, allowing her to campaign as the sole alternative to Trump. Haley intensified her criticism of the former president, questioning his mental acuity and pitching herself as a unifying candidate who would usher in generational change. 
the appeals failed to resonate with enough voters. Trump can now boast of being the first Republican presidential candidate to win open races in Iowa and New Hampshire since both states began leading the election calendar in 1976. A striking sign of how rapidly Republicans rallied around him to make him their nominee for the third consecutive time. By posting easy wins in both early states, Trump demonstrated an ability to unite the GOP's factions. He's garnered support from the evangelical conservatives, who are influential in Iowa and New Hampshire's more moderate voters, strength he hopes to replicate as the primary quickly expands to the rest of the U.S. President Joe Biden won New Hampshire's largely symbolic Democratic primary Tuesday, prevailing in an unusual write-in effort after he refused to campaign or appear on the ballot in the state. Biden easily bested two long-shot challengers, Minnesota Representative Dean Phillips and self-help author Marianne Williamson, who were on the ballot along with a host of little-known names. Excuse me. His victory in a race he was not formally contesting essentially cements Biden's grasp on the Democratic nomination for a second time. The New Hampshire race will likely not count toward amassing delegates for the presidential nomination after Democrats in the state, bucked a Biden-championed revamp of the primary calendar that placed South Carolina at the fore of the Democratic race for the White House. Haley was unable to capitalize on New Hampshire's more moderate political tradition. Now, her path to becoming the GOP standard bearer is narrowing quickly. She won't compete in a contest that awards delegates until South Carolina's February 24th primary. As the state's former governor, she's hoping a strong showing there could propel her into the March 5 Super Tuesday contest. But in a deeply conservative state where Trump is exceedingly popular, those ambitions may be tough to realize, and a home state loss could prove politically devastating. (coughs) Haley vowed Tuesday night to stay in the race. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation, she said. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. About half of GOP primary voters in New Hampshire said they were very or somewhat concerned that Trump is too extreme to win the general election, according to AP VoteCast, a survey of the state's electorate. Only about one-third say the same about Haley. Trump's position in the Tuesday contest is uh, remarkable, considering he faces 91 criminal charges related to everything from seeking to overturn the 2020 presidential election to mishandling classified documents and arranging payoffs to a porn actress. He left the White House in 2021 in the grim aftermath of an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol led by his supporters who sought to stop the certification of Biden's win. And Trump was the first president to be impeached twice.
He turned those vulnerabilities into an advantage among GOP voters. He argued that the criminal prosecutions reflect a politicized Justice Department, though there's no evidence that officials there were pressured by Biden or anyone else in the White House to file charges. As Trump begins to pivot his attention to Biden and a general election campaign, the question is whether the former president's framing of the legal cases will persuade voters beyond the GOP base. Trump lost the popular vote in the 2016 and 2020 elections and faced particular struggles in suburban communities that could prove decisive in the fall campaign. Trump also faces a a logistical challenge in balancing trials and campaigning. He frequently appeared voluntarily at a New York courtroom where a jury is considering whether he should pay additional damages to a columnist who last year won a $5 million jury award against Trump for sex abuse and defamation. He turned these appearances into campaign events, holding televised news conferences that give him an opportunity to spread his message to a large audience. He has no choice but to appear in court when the criminal cases begin, which could happen later this spring. Biden faces his own challenges. There are widespread concerns about his age at 81 years old. Dissent is also building within his party over Biden's alliance with Israel in its war against Hamas, putting the president standing at risk in swing states like Michigan. Biden championed new Democratic National Committee rules that have its 2024 primary beginning on February 3rd in South Carolina rather than in Iowa or New Hampshire. That left him in something of an awkward position at the outset of the nomination process. Congressman Eric Sorensen visits East Moline and Vets. The tables at the East Moline American Veterans Center were filled with vets Tuesday as Congressman Eric Sorensen listened to their concerns. The roundtable offered veterans a chance to discuss the challenges they face and needs in the community. Sorensen said it is crucial to give these voices an opportunity because they fuel how he advocates in Congress. We constantly have to bring veterans to the table so we can understand how I can advocate for the most important constituents that I have, he said. Last year, Sorensen, a Democrat who represents Illinois' 17th District, introduced the Autonomy for All Disabled Veterans Act, which would increase grant awards for disabled veterans to modify their homes to fit their needs. It would grant $10,000 for veterans with a service-connected disability and $5,000 for those with disabilities that are not service-connected. One of the veterans Sorensen spoke with was Mike Melmstrom, a Marine Reserve vet who served from 1972 to 1980. Malmstrom has been the commander of the East Moline AMVETS for 22 years and was glad to host the congressman. The room was full of familiar faces, but also a few he didn't recognize, he said. That part was encouraging because it means veterans want their voices heard, and no Swanson was there to take in what they had to say in order to take that back to Washington. Malmstrom said Swanson's office reached out about a sit-down, and he was more than happy to facilitate. Knowing there is a local elected official that is willing to listen, 
understand, and work on behalf of veterans raises confidence when it comes to knowing there is an advocate in Washington. Being a non-vet himself, I applaud him for looking out and reaching out and seeing what our issues are so he can take those back to Congress, he said. The roundtable discussion was attended by representatives from various veterans organizations in the Quad Cities who brought together ideas, concerns, and solutions. Malmstrom said he felt the meeting was a success and that it will lead to a positive outcome. I think today was very positive. I think people were able to get things off their chest concerning the VA and their issues. And I think it was a big benefit, he said. New QC Times president named. Rob Kravaritis will lead Times, Lee's Iowa business unit. Lee Enterprises has named Rob Kravaritis, I hope that's right, president of the Quad City Times and Lee's Iowa business unit, which includes markets in Waterloo, Mason City, and Sioux City. We're thrilled to welcome Rob to Lee Enterprises, said Ava Thomas, president of Lee's Midwest region. Rob's experience in the SAS space, expertise in leveraging data to drive sales, and ability to attract strategic partnerships align perfectly with our goal of digital transformation. Gravaritis has more than 20 years' experience in media and sales leadership, with a background in revenue growth, advertising sales, marketing, and business development. The Quad City Times has long been a vital part of community and business in the Quad Cities area, Gravaritis said. It's an honor to be named president of an organization with such a deep history and home of our headquarters for Lee Enterprises. I'm eager to begin work with my new colleagues and my family, and I look forward to being involved in the Quad Cities community. Gravaritis most recently served as Chief Revenue Officer for Heart Energy, where he led the sales and support divisions and built the company's new go-to, uh, new go-to-market strategy. Prior to Heart. Gravaritis was the head of sales at the Houston Business Journal. He also worked at the South Florida Sun Sentinel as vice president of advertising and publisher, overseeing multimedia advertising, marketing events, and the paper's digital agency. Over the course of his career, he has had leadership roles for Hearst-owned Houston Chronicle Media Group, Career Builder, Dex Media, Verizon Information Services, and AOL. Once I had the opportunity to visit, my decision was clear, Kravaritis said. From the leadership team to the relationship team, between the media markets and the communities we serve, it was extraordinary. I'm excited to meet the local business community and get started. Gravaritis is a graduate of Frostburg State University with a bachelor's degree in marketing. He and his wife, Trish, have two children, Nicholas and Alexis. Mural Artists Needed for Arts Alley Rock Island is seeking artists to design and install two new murals at Arts Alley. The murals will be created on separate walls, one facing east, one facing west. Arts Alley is located at 1719 2nd Avenue in downtown. 
Interested and qualified artists are encouraged to complete the Request for Qualifications form by Wednesday, February 21st at 5 p.m., according to joint announcement from the Rock Island Downtown Alliance and Quad City Arts. The form can be accessed online on the Quad City Arts website. Downtown Executive Director Jack Cullen said it is hard to convey in digital renderings the impact he expects the large-scale murals to have for the downtown streetscape and economy. We believe these improvements, paired with plans to program Arts Alley, will bring more foot traffic downtown, and we are thrilled to take this next step with Quad City Arts and the City of Rock Island, he said. The renovation of Arts Alley is one major component of the larger Rebuild Downtown Rock Island project. The $7.4 million downtown project is set to have a groundbreaking this spring, which includes other improvements to streetscaping, such as lighting and signage, space for social gatherings, making sidewalks wider for outdoor dining, and more. The Arts Alley improvement has a budget of about $534,000, with half of the costs being funded by a $267,000 State of Illinois Tourism Attractions Grant. The city will fund the remaining costs with a combination of downtown tax increment financing, or TIF funds, and American Rescue Plan Act funds. Kevin Maynard, Quad City Arts Executive Director, said his organization is happy to help others in the community bring in more art. This project is extra special because it is literally right outside our door, Maynard said. We are excited to focus on creative placemaking with the Rock Island Downtown Alliance and the City of Rock Island. Thank you, Sally. U of I opens urgent care. The clinic is next to Raising Canes in Davenport. Written for us by Gretchen Teske. Providers are now seeing patients at University of Iowa Healthcare's first urgent care, kit, urgent care clinic in the Quad Cities. The walk-in clinic at 25 The walk-in clinic at 2705 East 53rd Street in Davenport, next to Raising Canes, open Tuesday. The new clinic will have extended hours Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. and weekend hours of 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. Patients of all ages can be seen at any U of I Healthcare urgent care location, according to a news release. Urgent Care's walk-in clinics are intended for minor illnesses and injuries and typically have shorter wait times than a busy emergency room, a news release states. The clinic will also provide services that go beyond a typical walk-in clinic, including IV fluids, stitches, and x-rays. A second urgent care clinic will open later this year in Bettendorf at 865 Lincoln Road, where the health system already has local services in family medicine, dermatology, and pediatric specialty care. This expansion of health care services in the region is part of U of I's health care's long-term goal of expanding health care across the state. Our goal is to provide more convenient access and continuity of care for our patients and employees who live in the Quad Cities area, said Douglas Van Dale, M.D., Vice Dean for Clinical Affairs, Carver College of Medicine, in a statement. 
By increasing same-day care access, we're showing our commitment to keeping health care local wherever we can. Patients may schedule a visit through mychart.walkins. I'm sorry, that doesn't read the way. Patients may schedule a visit through mychart. Walk-ins are also welcome. GAHC creates $37,000 endowment fund. The German-American Heritage Center and Museum has announced the results of its fundraising campaign through the Moline Regional Community Foundation's Community Endowment Challenge. In September 2023, the Moline Foundation announced its rebranding as the Moline Regional Community Foundation and at that time created a Community Endowment Challenge. The challenge tasked organizations like the German American Heritage Center and Museum to raise money to hold an endowment account at the foundation. If organizations met their goal by the end of 2023, the Moline Regional Community Foundation would match the amount by 50%. GAHC met the goal of raising $25,000. This was matched at 50% by the foundation to create a new endowment account for the museum in the amount of $37,500. And now um, for obituaries, and we will start here with um, pending funerals. Barbara J. Duda, age 71, of Rock Island, Illinois, passed away Sunday January 21st, 2024, at Unity Point Trinity in Rock Island. Arrangements are pending at Rafferty Funeral Home in Moline. Irvin R. Prins, 83, of Morrison, Illinois, passed away Sunday, January 21st, at home. Arrangements are pending at Bosma Ranks Funeral Home in Morrison. Kathleen C. Katie Tritt, age 73, of Davenport, Iowa, passed away Sunday, January 21st. Arrangements are pending at Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home in Davenport. Girolama Mima Randazzo, age 83, of Milan, Illinois, passed away Monday, January 22nd at home. Arrangements are pending at Whelan Presley Funeral Home in Rock Island. Marcia A. Hetzler, 60, of Wilton, Iowa, passed away Tuesday, January 23rd at the Wilton Retirement Community. Arrangements are pending at Bentley Funeral Home in Wilton. Edie M. Heiler, 84, of Norwalk, Ohio, formerly of Eldridge in Davenport, Iowa, passed away January 22nd at the Norwalk Memorial Home. Arrangements are pending at Rafferty Funeral Home in Moline. Mary A. McBride, 98, of Rock Island, Illinois, passed away Sunday, January 21st, at St. Anthony's Nursing Home in Rock Island. Arrangements are pending at Whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory in Rock Island. Linda Kinney Martin Pitford, age 80, of Coal Valley, Illinois, passed away Saturday, January 20th, at home. Arrangements are pending at Esterdahl Mortuary and Crematory Limited in Moline. Gary Lee Fuse, 43, of Rock Island, Illinois, 
passed away Sunday, January 21st at home. Arrangements are pending at Mississippi Valley Cremation and Direct Burial in, in Moline. Phyllis Ann Affrey, 83, of Davenport, Iowa, passed away Tuesday, January 23rd at home. Arrangements are pending at Mississippi Valley Cremation and Direct Burial in Moline. Leon L. Feuerbach, aged 90, of Davenport, Iowa, passed away Tuesday, January 23rd at the Davenport Lutheran Home. Arrangements are pending at Whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory in Rock Island. Michael L. Ross, age 76, of East Moline, Illinois, passed away Sunday, January 21st at Celebrate Senior Living in Moline. Arrangements are pending at Sullivan Ellis Mortuary Limited in East Moline. Thank you, Pam. Vern M. Flegel. June 2, 1935 to January 20th. Vern Flegel, 88, of DeWitt, passed away peacefully with his wife by his side on Saturday, January 20th at Fieldstone of DeWitt. A memorial visitation will be held February 16th at the DeWitt United Methodist Church from 3 p.m. until 6 p.m. A celebration of life service will be held February 17th at 11 a.m. in the church with a luncheon to follow. Verlin M. Flegel was born on June 2, 1935, in Fairfield, the son of Claude Everett and Alice Irene Briggs Flegel. He attended a one-room country school through eighth grade, then attended, excuse me, then graduated from Fairfield High School in 1953. He was active in track and field, specializing in the half mile and mile, and enjoyed his job at a local greenhouse. Vern got his B.A. degree from Parsons College in 1958 and his M.A. from the University of Iowa in 1968. He continued to take extra coursework throughout his career. Vern taught for six years at Hudson High School in Hudson, and then for 30 years at Central Community High School in DeWitt, from 1964 to 1994. Vern also taught at Clinton Community College from 1990 to 2000. He was recognized for his excellence in teaching, with many awards, including the Chemistry Teacher of the Year from the Iowa Academy of Science in 1989, the Governor's Award for Science Teaching in 1989, and the Teacher of the Year at Central High School in 1991. In DeWitt, Vern taught biology, chemistry, and team-taught physics. He created new courses of physiology in 1969 and biochemistry in 1974. Vern was given the assignment of being the yearbook advisor, serving in that role for over 20 years. He was also head of the science department and advisor for the science club, helping them create an outdoor garden on school property, which was named in his honor. Vern was known for being an attentive husband, father, and grandfather. He had a great sense of humor and loved to joke and pay funny pranks on others. He had a generous nature and was always quick to help family, friends, neighbors, students, and even those he didn't know. He loved to learn and was a hard worker. 
He took pride in his teaching and wanted to make a positive impact on his many students. Vern developed strong and supportive relationships with his students by being available to them just to talk and to encourage them in their own pursuits. He encouraged students to develop critical thinking skills by saying, I do not recall, to their many questions. He also extended his teasing to his students by telling them that his birthday was February 31st, 1917, and that his middle name was Aloysius. He created experiments for students to make elephant toothpaste and baby shampoo cake. Many fondly remember Verd's swear jar, which he used to raise money for broken lab equipment. Vern had a painting business for many years, during summers while teaching and full-time after he retired. He painted many houses in the DeWitt area. He was an avid gardener and was known for his beautiful flowers and plants, this being a passion since his early years when he worked at a greenhouse. He was also skilled at floral design and for many years made floral and evergreen arrangements for his church and family. He also enjoyed woodworking, painting, genealogy, photography, traveling, and spending time with his family. He was also involved in many volunteer activities, serving on the DeWitt Board of Parks and Recreation, Foster Care Review Board, Lions Club, serving as past president of the Noon Lions, the DeWitt Zoning Board of Adjustment, teaching CPR for the American Red Cross, and numerous committees at the DeWitt United Methodist Church. Vern married his college sweetheart, Catherine K. Stark, in 1958 in Ogden. They celebrated 65 years of marriage. Together they raised three children, Steve, Scott, and Kristen Green. Grandchildren, a whole bunch of them, uh, about six it looks like, and then great-grandchildren as well. He's also survived by his brother Norman, and nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, Claude and Alice, his brother, Frank, his sister, Iona, and sisters-in-law, Carol Flegel and Sue Flegel. Memorials are suggested to the family to be used for a scholarship for the advancement of science education that will be established in Vern's name. Arrangements are in the care of Schultz Funeral Home, in DeWitt. Condolences may be expressed at SchultzFuneralHomes.com. Ronald H. Snyder, December 31st to January 21st. Ronald H. Snyder, 84, of Davenport, passed away on Sunday, January 21st, East Campus. Funeral services and massive Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, January 26th at Our Lady of Victory Catholic Church in Davenport. The family will greet friends at the church from 9.30 a.m. until the time of the service. Burial will be at Davenport Memorial Park with a luncheon following. Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home assisted the family with arrangements. Ron was born on December 31, 1939 in Davenport to William and Myrtle Snyder. He graduated from Davenport High School and was a veteran having served with the U.S. Army. On February 17, 1968, Ron was united in marriage to Roseanne Kramer in Phoenix, Arizona. Ron owned and operated Snyder's Service Center in Davenport for many years with his son Darren alongside. More recently, 
him and Darren operated Snyder's Storage. In his free time, he enjoyed fishing, watching sports, tinkering in the garage, and hanging out with his canine companion, Rusty. Additionally, for many years, decades even, each Wednesday he spent time with his buddies aptly named the Knights of the Round Table, which included his twin brother, Don Snyder. Survivors include his wife of 55 years, Roseanne, children Darren Snyder, Lisa Snyder, and David Snyder, grandchildren Trevor, Alexia, and Emily Snyder, and a brother, Everett Snyder. Survivors of the Knights of Round Table include John Keeley and John Melroy. In addition to his parents, Ron was preceded in death by his twin brother, Don, his older brother, William, and his sister, Mary Lou. Online condolences may be made to the family by visiting his obituary at hmdfuneralhome.com. Sandra Lee Rolke, September 20th, 1940 to January 18th. Sandra Lee Rolke, 83, of Wolcott, passed away Thursday, January 18th, at Genesis Medical Center in Davenport, surrounded by her family. Per her wishes, cremation rites have been accorded. A private family service will be held at a later date. Memorials may be made to the Wolcott Fire Association. Sandy was born September 20, 1940, in Davenport to Alvin and Lenora Arp. She graduated from Davenport High School in 1958. She married Donald Herman Rolke on November 18, 1961. They later divorced but remained friends. She worked at Strider Motor Company and Walcott Ford, retiring in 2010. Sandy had a great sense of humor and was quick to give a smile and laugh. She loved her family and enjoyed going to all her children and grandchildren's sporting events and activities. She had many fond memories of spending time with her cousins at all of the Arp and Meyer family gatherings and Friday Ladies Night with Donna Groves and Jan Moeller. Those left to honor her memory include her daughter, Robbie Rolke of Stockton, sons Tim and Todd of Walcott, grandchildren, great-granddaughter, and cousin and special sister, Anita Arp. The family would like to thank Robert Behrens for all his love and support to Sandy throughout the years. She was preceded in death by her parents and two brothers, Marlon and Laverne Arp. Online condolences may be expressed at weertsfh.com. Darlene E. Eichert July 14, 1925 to January 15th. Darlene E. Eichert, 98, of DeWitt, formerly of Clinton, passed away peacefully at Fieldstone of DeWitt on Monday, January 15th. Funeral service will take place at 11 a.m. on Friday, January 26th at Lemke Funeral Homes, South Chapel. A visitation will occur one hour prior from 10 a.m. until the time of service. Burial immediately will follow the funeral service at Clinton Lawn Cemetery. Lemke Funeral Homes assisted the family with arrangements. Darlene was born July 14, 1925, in Clinton, the daughter of Marvin and Johanna Hennecke Peterson. She was a graduate of Davenport High School. Darlene was united in marriage to Cl Clyde. 
Townsend on February 21st, 1945 in Davenport. They later divorced. Darlene then married Merrill Eichardt on October 21, 1966. She was a past member of the Fulton Presbyterian Church. Darlene owned and operated the Rusty Nail Lounge in Lowmore. Darlene loved tending to her garden. She also enjoyed bowling. She was a fabulous cook, and folks could always count on a delicious meal at the Rusty Nail. She also passed along her gift of cooking to her children. Later in life, she enjoyed traveling. What was very meaningful to her was all of her friendships she developed throughout her life. She was a real people person. Above all, she loved her family very much and will be incredibly missed. Darlene is survived by her three children, Cindy, uh, Russ, and Tammy, nine grandchildren, 17 great-grandchildren, one great-great-grandson, and many friends. Darlene is preceded in death by her parents, her husband, one son, Gary, one great-granddaughter, and her brother, Irving Peterson. Memorials can be directed to the family. The family wishes to thank the entire staff at the Calico House at Fieldstone of DeWitt for the loving care shown to their mother. Fond memories and condolences for Darlene's family may be shared at LemkeFuneralHomes.com obituary page or the Lemke Funeral Home Facebook page. Arthur, excuse me, Arnold L. Pruder, September 4, 1931 to January 20th. Arnold L. Pruder, 92, of Davenport, passed away on Saturday, January 20th at the Call Home. A private family service will be held on Thursday, January 25th at Weir's Funeral Home. Private burial will follow at Oakdale Memorial Gardens. Memorials may be left to Scott County Humane Society. Online condolences may be expressed at Weir's, that's W-E-E-R-T-S and then F-H for funeral home, dot com. Arnold was born on September 4, 1931 in Davenport to Frederick and Nettie Pruder. He proudly served in the United States Army, where he met Molly while stationed in England. They were united in marriage on October 22, 1953. She preceded him in death on January 9, 2022. Arnold was employed by the Rock Island Arsenal as a methods and standards engineer. He retired in the mid-1980s. Arnold was a very talented woodcarver, making many intricate figures he would display around his home. His hobbies included fishing and camping with his family, rebuilding Model A cars, and a member of the Model A Car Club. Arnold was also an avid Iowa Hawkeyes football fan. Survivors include his two sons, uh, Donald Pruder, uh, two grandchildren, oh, excuse me, I forgot somebody, Rick, his other son, two grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and preceded in death by his parents and his wife. Pranchke, April 25th, 1931 to January 20th. Alvin H. Pranchke, 92, of Davenport, passed away on January 20th at Davenport Lutheran Home. 
Per his wishes, he will be cremated. There will be no services at this time. Inurnment will take place at Davenport Memorial Park Cemetery. Memorials may be left to Trinity Lutheran Church, Davenport. Online condolences may be expressed at wurtzfh.com. Al was born on April 25, 1931 in Omaha, Nebraska to Fred and Lu Louise Pranchke. He was united in marriage to Joan Evans on August 25, 1962. She preceded him in death on January 21, 2023. Al worked for the Rock Island Railroad for many years. He went on to work for the Davenport School District delivering mail. He retired in December 1995. Al was an avid rock and mineral collector. He was a simple man with simple hobbies. Survivors include his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. He was preceded in death by his parents, wife Joni, one daughter, Rose Bond, one brother, Fred, and one sister, Ruth. Teresa Gutierrez Buckland Jennett, February 25, 1941 to January 18th. Teresa, age 82, of Davenport, passed away on January 18th at her home. Visitation will be held on Wednesday, January 31st from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home in Davenport. Teresa was born on February 25, 1941 in Davenport to Jesse and Juanita Gutierrez. She graduated from Davenport High School in 1959. Teresa was united in marriage to Dennis Buckland in 1965 in Davenport, and he preceded her in death in 1980. Teresa enjoyed word games and puzzles. Most of all, she adored her grandchildren, and that took priority over everything. Survivors include her children, special adopted daughter, 10 grandchildren, 7 great-grandchildren, 3 step-grandchildren, 3 step-great-grandchildren, and a sister, Pat Mills, and nephews. In addition to her parents and husband, Teresa was preceded in death by a brother, Jesse Jr. and son-in-law, Mac McVeigh. Online condolences may be made to the family by visiting her obituary at hmdfuneralhome.com. We're ready for the opinion page of the QC Times, How the Nation's Gain is Florida's Lost. Written for us by Eugene Robinson. Ron DeSantis and his money fire pit of the presidential campaign didn't even make it as far as the New Hampshire primary. Somewhere in some magic kingdom, Mickey Mouse must be laughing. As Florida's governor, you will recall, DeSantis has waged a ridiculous war against his state's biggest tourist attraction, Walt Disney World, to show Republican voters how pugnacious and anti-woke he is. That is his idea, his only idea, really, of a winning political message. His state, DeSantis loves to tell crowds, is where woke goes to die. His candidacy pr died pretty much everywhere. DeSantis' campaign and the technically independent super PAC that supported him, never backed down, burned through an incredible $150 million. For all that cash, DeSantis got a crushing 30-point loss to Donald Trump in the Iowa caucuses and a grand total of nine 
GOP convention delegates. He dropped out Sunday after reportedly deciding that a likely distant third-place finish Tuesday in New Hampshire behind Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley would further damage his political brand. That's rich given the way DeSantis has used his office not as an opportunity to serve the people of Florida, but as a branding exercise. In positioning himself as the cowboy-booted crusader of anti-wokeness, he did real damage to his state and its institutions. DeSantis launched his senseless fight against Disney, which has over 80,000 employees in Florida, after the company criticized his Don't Say Gay legislation, barring discussion of sexual identity in public schools. Rather than simply ignore a press release that hardly anyone would have noticed, DeSantis sought to punish Disney for daring to speak out. He seized control of the governing district that controls land use and services in the 25,000 acre Disney World Complex, a move that led to state and federal lawsuits that are still ongoing. Never back down, I guess, against Tinkerbell. His attempt to pander to the GOP base on social issues went far beyond don't say gay, however. The Stop Woke Act that he pushed through the GOP-controlled legislature bars teachers in the public schools from teaching critical race theory, which was not being taught to begin with, and ends all DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in Florida's public universities. It also seeks to restrict diversity training by private employers in the the state. That law is tied up in another legal battle after a federal judge blocked it and dissent is appealed. But meanwhile, the State Department of Education, controlled by the governor, has issued rules that essentially squelch discussion of race in a manner that makes any students uncomfortable. His defense of a new Florida high school curriculum in which students are to be taught that some black people actually benefited from slavery certainly made me uncomfortable. All this posturing has real-world impacts. Florida school districts are having trouble hiring and retaining teachers, and Florida state colleges, including the flagship University of Florida, are losing prized faculty members. Ultimately, it is Florida students who suffer for DeSantis' ambition. On abortion, DeSantis apparently decided not to let any potential GOP candidate outflank him on the right. Having already signed a 15-week ban into law, he went further and had the legislature pass a pitiless six-week ban with no exceptions for rape or incest. That law, too, is the subject of a court fight, which the state Supreme Court is suspected to eventually excuse me, eventually decide in DeSantis' favor. The good news is that Florida voters may have the final word in November. Activists say they now have enough signatures to place a measure enshrining abortion rights in the state constitution on the ballot. If the DeSantis administration fails to torpedo the ballot initiative, and if Florida follows the pattern of other states, having abortion at issue will likely boost Democratic turnout and cause problems for Republicans up and down the ballot. DeSantis' effort to leverage reproductive rights for political gain will have been counterproductive. Just like his whole campaign, 
It is hard to see what DeSantis might have gained from his presidential run and easy to see what he has lost. His appeal, in theory, was as someone who could deliver on Trump's MAGA policy agenda without all of Trump's baggage. But DeSantis proved to be an awkward, wooden candidate who struggled to connect. His best weapons in Florida had been his bluster and belligerence, but he was too timid to use them against Trump. As all of the failed GOP candidates have learned, primary voters don't want new Trump, not while Trump Classic is still available. The nation's gain is Florida's loss, sadly. I fear DeSantis will continue using the state as a stage to boost his mega profile, just like those awfully high heels on his cowboy boots. Now, Eugene Robinson is a political columnist for the Washington Post Writers Group. We have time for just a, one or two short letters to the editor, maybe just one. Um, no, we don't. Sorry. But because that does bring us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Patty Daniels, and my partner at the microphone has been Sally Orkies. You can listen to Iowa's programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for radio reading service.